What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is the Dingo Talk Alumni Tour. My guest this week is Bill Kiefer, class of 1971. We're going to talk about everything that led up to Bill coming to Bethany and what he did throughout his life, uh, Board of Trustee Member, Alumni Council, uh, Legal Council for Weird and Steel, and a couple other things. Um, but without further ado, this is Bill Kiefer. You want to know by now. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is the Dingo Talk Alumni Tour. My guest this week is Bill Kiefer, class of 1971. Bill, thank you for being on the show. Hey, I'm glad you asked me. So we're going to do this the same way we do every week. Bill's going to tell us how he got to Bethany way back when. Uh, we'll talk about his time here at Bethany. Take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that, that dreaded test that keeps us all kind of connected and everything that Bill has done since he left Bethany. Well, figuratively speaking, left Bethany. Um, but so how did you end up here, Bethany, as a student? Uh, it's, it's interesting, probably like most people in my class, most people my age. Um, it was a combination of family push, guidance counselor push, but... Um, I had, uh, my mother had a minister when she was growing up who was a Bethany grad. And she thought he was just a phenomenal minister. And so to her, Bethany was a place that really educated um, at least ministers phenomenally. And that minister had gone on to become a lawyer and a very prominent lawyer in Pittsburgh. His name was Emerson Hess. You will see there are plaques around the college where um, he's on a few where uh, projects where they list the major contributors to building projects. Uh, he and his wife are listed on those. But um, to, to her, um, he was one of the most successful people she met when she was young. And um, so Bethany, and he always gave Bethany a lot of credit for how he ended up in life. And, which was quite well. And uh, so she thought that would be a good place for at least her older, oldest, older son, me, to go. And I wasn't totally sold on that. I went to um, a fairly large consolidated high school in Pittsburgh that was called Churchill Area High School back then. And I want to say my graduating class was a little bit over 400, 410, 420. Um, and I was in the top half of the class, uh, grade-wise, um, but when it came to things like SATs, National Merit Tests, things like that, I was probably in the top, certainly the top 5% of the class, if not the top 2 or 3%. Um, so, it, 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 and it's funny, not knowing how colleges recruit back then, uh, and knowing what I do today, um, colleges buy names from the SATs of, you know, we're looking for kids who have grades and, uh, you know, not grades so much, but SATs at this level. And um, so I was getting, say, starting in my junior year, um, after I took my SATs then, or the PSATs, um, before that even, um, I would be getting letters from places like Cal California Institute of Technology, Harvey Mudd, um, Carnegie Mellon, back then it was Carnegie Tech, 
um, Harvard, all kinds of places that I knew I wasn't going to. <laughs> um, because, when, like I said, I was in the top half of the class. I was not in the top quarter. Although it was a little bit tough to tell because Churchill was one of those places that was trying, it was a new school, opened in um, the fall of 63. And this I was a sophomore there in the second year it was open. It was trying to be an academically elite school without any of the trappings of elitism. And, and, and I can try to explain that a little further. But um, the largest employer in the school district was something called, was a division of Westinghouse. It was their research and development arm. And um, so about every fourth kid or third kid in the class had a father who was a scientist or engineer at Westinghouse. So there's very, very heavy emphasis on the sciences, the mathematics, and, um, but at the same time, there was nothing like the National Honor Society. Supposedly, there was no class rank. All you knew was which fifth of the class you were in. Um, so it, it was kind of a contradiction in terms that way. Um, but they tried very, very, very hard. It was very good uh, high school academically. And um, it, it, it was a, a very large school. With I got to stop you right there. Hold on one second. Oh, yeah, I know what happened there. Yeah. Somebody was trying to call you. It's fine. It's still recording. Okay. It was a very large edit, yeah. school for about 1,400 kids, 1,500 kids overall in three grades. Um, and uh, it, it did its mission well. Um, but in any event, um, you know, they had recruiters uh, come in almost every day. You could get out of a class if you wanted to hear from a recruiter from a certain college. And um, at some point in time, it was probably maybe the fall of my senior year, when I was getting ready to apply to schools, um, the Bethany recruiter came through, and my mother certainly wanted me to my dad too, to, to see them. So I did, and it was a really impressive gentleman by the name of Stephen Monheim. St Stephen was a recent graduate. He was one of their two admissions department people that were on the road, and um, could knock anybody's socks off. And I came away saying, boy, this place must be really something. Well, back then, one of the things Bethany did they would take their number one w woman's graduate, number two, or number one men's graduate, and offer them jobs recruiting. And if they didn't get number ones, they would drop down to number two. But they usually got them. And um, I know that uh, Stephen had a very, very successful business career in New York. And he was, my recollection, the um, nephew, perhaps, of um, a Steubenville businessman who just passed away three or four years ago at the age of 102. Um, long life. Long life, <laughs> very, very uh, prominent businessman, owned was primary shareholder in companies like Amco Pittsburgh and things like that. His name was uh, Lewis Berkman. Um, but these were the types of people that they had working in admissions that you know, if you wanted a career doing something, or if you wanted to go to medical school, you would just, they taught you about that. Mm -hmm. and, and Bethany, in, in some ways at that time, was almost an honors college. 
Um, so anyway, I came away impressed. I did, did the application, um, and I was worried about getting in. I, I applied to four colleges, uh, Bethany, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, University of Pittsburgh, and uh, Penn State main campus. I got into all four. Um, and I was a little undecided, but my parents were pushing hard for Bethany. We went and toured Dickinson, and I can tell my dad wasn't thrilled about it because it was $1,000 a year more. It was maybe $4,000 a year, maybe $1,500 more. And uh, Bethany had offered me a small scholarship. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was something in its favor. But um, And they didn't want me staying in Pittsburgh. And they didn't want me in an atmosphere as big as Penn State. And they were paying the bill. <laughs> yes, so, so they had a lot to say about it. <laughs> so in any event, they um, convinced me that um, we should go down at least look at the campus. Now, everybody um, went to church almost back in those days. This is 1967. So instead of going to church this Sunday, let's just drive down there and take a look and see what you think. So, and I read in the catalog, and there were a lot of things I didn't like about just no alcohol on campus, no this, no this, no that, no that. And I don't know what had happened um, there the night before, and I can tell you my visit was January 15th, 1967. This was a window tour at drive-by, because it was the day of the first Super Bowl. And they parked the car in front of nobody around. It's like 11 in the morning, because I wanted to be home for that Super Bowl. I mean, they parked the car in front of Cochran Hall, and which I read new from the catalog was a freshman men's dorm, and there were beer bottles and cans all over the front lawn. And that was the end of that. And I said, man. well, you know, maybe this place isn't so bad <laughs> after all. So it's fine to have rules, and it's fine to know where they end. So um, I then had a formal visit a few months later. I'm going just a few weeks later, perhaps March, might have been right after spring break. And my tour guide was that was the woman. Her name was Eileen Kistler, who had been the number one graduate on the female side in the class before. And uh, she was wonderful. She took me around school. And my high school sent maybe two kids here a year. Um, and I saw one or two of them on campus. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a great tour, at the end of which I met Bob Sandercox, who was in charge of admissions. And he explained to me how, how much I would like it there and how much they would like having me come. And that was impressive. Um, and, and I think that was, uh, that probably sealed the deal for me. Um, and I also had a history teacher who had graduated from here a few years before that. Her name was Beverly Carlson, and she wanted me to go here every so you day. So you had different, everybody from every which way was pointing you in the... Everyone but my guidance counselor who thought I was an idiot. <laughs> so um, he was probably right, but uh, I, I remember he never spent any time with me. I mean, you know, you're in a school that size, that each one of them has... 400, 500 students. There were only three guidance counselors, and just um, doing the schedules, being sure people are on track, and you know, get, getting the transcripts out, whatever it takes, that, that's a lot of time. So I remember 
having a meeting with him about college. This was shortly before I graduated. And I sit down and he's looking at my test scores and my grades and he says something like, we sure missed the boat on you. You really fell through the cracks. And I said, he said, I said, well, no, thanks. Because he's saying that because I got these uh, test scores that are like moon yeah. shots. And um, he says, um, where are you planning to go to college? And I said, Bethany College. Oh, no, you can't go to Bethany. We send three or four kids there a year. They're not like you. You can wake up and look out your dorm window and see the cows eating the grass. I thought that was an exaggeration, but it turns out that was Camel Hall back in those days. <laughs> Good. Um, so, but I, I thanked him for his advice and his... Uh, good advice for three years, which I had not, none from him, <laughs> and went on my way and uh, showed up here on August 28, 1967, to be tested, prodded, poked, whatever they did for orientation back then. And, and I can tell you a lot about that. They showed us the movie Tom Jones, which was wonderful. It was a great movie with Albert Finney. At nights, I'd take it with time. Then they showed us one called Blue Denim about unwanted teenage pregnancy from, you know, sex outside of marriage. Um, but they tested us a lot. In fact, it was uh, John Cunningham, it was J.C.'s first year. It was his title, Director of Testing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I met with him to review my test results. They gave you the MMPI and IQ test. It's four or five tests. And I can read upside down, so I can see the strip when I'm sitting down and review it with him. And I can see it's like 96, 98, 99, 97, 2. And so he's going through the stuff with me. And he says, hey, general knowledge is this, your IQ is that. It's all this 90s thing. And I can see at the end, I said, what's that 2? And he says, do you remember the test that asked you, you go upstairs one at a time, two at a time, do you like scrambled eggs or fried eggs? That test? Yeah, he says, that's called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality in Inventory. And that tells us about you personally. I said, okay, so what's the two? So that's this, your motivational score. What do you mean? He says, out of every hundred people, 98 of them are more motivated to succeed than you. I said, ooh, that's not so good. He said, well, you know, you're smart enough, and we'll change some of that while you're here. I see, he says, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm thinking I might like to go to law school. I said, what's that take? He says, with the kind of test scores you're capable of achieving, probably about a 2.8. <coughs> and I said, oh, that's not so bad. He says, yeah, we predict you'll get a 2.9 and you'll graduate in four years. <laughs> and the prediction was pretty close. I was a 2.89. Right there. Right on it. So... Social life and whatnot. You you talked you touched on it when you when you came to Bethany on that random Sunday. Uh huh. What was the social life like for you coming in as a freshman and then becoming an Alpha Sig and? Well, you know, I came to college and um, I had a girlfriend at home, so I shrank back a little bit from it, but there wasn't much because there was no barn in town. Um, the German beer garden, then known as M's, out uh, east of town, two miles or so, two and a half miles, was the closest bar. I was only 17, so I was too young to drink if anybody courted me. 
And girls had to, they were allowed out to about dark. Uh, women had hours. Freshman women, if I recall correctly, first semester freshman year, on uh, weekday nights they had to be in their dorm by 9, and weekends they had to be in by 11. And they had to sign out, sign back in, where you were going, who you were with, on a card, and at the end of every month, the card, a copy of the card was sent home to their parents. So there was no hiding where you were hanging out with. And if they violated um, curfew, they were grounded. Okay, for okay, let's see here. You you, you didn't get in until eleven thirty. You are not allowed out of, out of the dorm on weekends except for meals for two weeks or something like that would be the punishment. So the social life was a little lean, unless of course they said you joined a fraternity or a sorority. Was that how you go down that road, or was that something you pretty, always... Pretty much. It wasn't something that I had ever um, thought much about. Um, the movie Animal House was 25 years later, or 20 years later. So um, there wasn't... Didn't know much about mm -hmm. it. But what happened, and it was first semester rush back then, um, there were seven fraternities, five sororities, and... Uh, freshman men were required to attend a luncheon about six weeks into the term um, in the basement of Phillips Hall, which was where women normally ate. And um, we had a lecture on why, you know, the importance of, well, should you choose to, these are the advantages of uh, joining the Greek system, and um, it's not just parties and fun and games. They're, academic side to it, there's study hours and all sorts of things. Um, but the, the social life in the college was largely built around that. Other than that, there was a movie in Commencement Hall every Friday night and every Saturday night, and that was it. Um, so, and the way it was structured is each of the fraternities for men and sororities for women would have the names of um, and post office box address of so many uh, students, and they would send an invitation to a quote rush party, um, um, and you could go. They were two a week, I think Tuesdays and Thursdays for maybe four weeks, and at the end of that they have what they call pref parties, which preferential parties where you got an invitation. Not everybody got an invitation. Mm -hmm. Fraternities, sororities that were interested in you sent you an invitation to a preferential party. And you could spend two hours there, or I think that's how long the parties were, or less if you wanted to double up and go two places. Um, at the end of that, you know, you made a list of one, two, three, and uh, filled it out, or you could say, yeah, it's, it's not for me. Um, and um, the fraternities, sororities did the same thing, and they tried to match it, just like they would in anything else, yeah. a draft, so to speak. And um, one thing it did determine was where you were going to live, because for men, the at that point in time, the only independent housing that I can recall was McLean and McEachran which were two kind of shoddy prefab dorms down in the town, when one of which is torn down, and the other is today the um, 
alumni house, or yep. alumni center. And the one that was torn down was the parking lot for it. So the Alpha Six had a great house. <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic, phenomenal house. Sigma News weren't bad. KAs drank a lot. The Beta House was not like it is today. It was not a particularly good house, I thought. They slept barrack style. And, you know. well, so some things haven't changed for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Alpha Sig comes down on, as your as your 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 landing spot. Yep. Um, did Bob Sandercox play a role in that at all, or was um, it after the fact that? I'm sure he probably did. As director of admissions, I've always suspected that he may have told their rush chairman, um, you know, this is the, the, what I think are the, the ones you really should focus on in the class or whatever. But I don't know that he did that. I've never asked him. Um, but one was always very keen about this, not wanting to disappoint Bob Sandercox. And what was, so you're, you're talking, there was, you said, what, seven, seven fraternities, five sororities? Yes. What's the, what's the enrollment at Bethany? At that time, time, about 1,200. Okay. And um, and the professors all basically lived in town, and it was pretty much so. I mean, living out of town might be somebody living in Wellsburg, or um, up on Washington Pike. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, but more than I can't remember many that did live out of town. Most of them were here in the town, and, and that is now the school had some faculty housing. But there were apartments around town, um, and housing that the college would assist professors who wanted to buy a home. Mm -hmm. so. Which which also it takes a load off of the professor. Mm -hmm. Relaxes you now. You have a place to stay. Yes. And so what were the professors like when you were here? Because you said the the rules on on what women could like there were rules on women. There seemed to be a lot of rules in the catalog. What was the the academic and it Every was, day it was really rigorous. Um, English, for example, um, was a very uh, prominent major. And uh, they would have a rule, you know, three absences. Excused or not, you failed the class. Economics was very rigorous. Um, and biology, chemistry, physics. Physics was headed by the chairman of the physics department was uh, a Chinese person, uh, Dr. Wei, W-E-I, who um, was not internationally known, who had come to the U.S., you know, there'd been a communist takeover in China plus the Japanese invasion. Uh, he'd been a head of the United States, or, excuse me, United Nations Commission on Nuclear Energy. Some of, I told you the type of Westinghouse scientists, a lot of them were foreign. Two of my parents' bridge partners were the Tongs, who also came from China. And Dr. Tong, when he found us coming to Bethany, ah, you study with Dr. Wei. He, genius. Okay. Dr. Tong was pretty <laughs> bright, too. He, uh, and for him to say him. that, it's... Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, but it, it was a rigorous environment. There were majors where you could probably get by on a little less, perhaps sociology maybe, or uh, something something like that where um, phys ed, mm -hmm. where um, 
it was maybe a little bit easier academically. So you have the rigorous academics, the social life that comes alive when you join Greek life. What was athletics like? Athletics were really good. Um, football was very, very good. Bob Goyne was the coach then. And um, I think in the previous three seasons, he hadn't had an undefeated, untied season, but he had had at least one um, uh, season that would have been undefeated but for a tie and a couple of one-loss mm -hmm. seasons. They were really, really heavy hitter in the PAC at that time. And that's NAIA PAC. That's yes. before it becomes a Division Three. Yes. And, and then you had basketball who won the, cha the PAC championship four years in a row. Um, swimming was nationally ranked. They finished third and fifth in the two years before I got here. Um, baseball was very good, aided somewhat by um, my class. I think the uh, spring of 70 was at that time, the again coached by Bob Moyne, the first time they ever won the PAC outright in baseball. Uh, soccer was just starting. It was a club sport moving to a varsity program. Um, John Cunningham became the coach. And, uh, oh, let's see, Stelios Papadopoulos, Fuzzy Williams. These were guys that uh, founded, founded the program. Plus, there were some excellent kids that had come in from New Jersey. Uh, uh, Dickie Richard Cox, uh, I think comes to mind, and some others. And some other kids had flopped over from football to soccer. On the other hand, Bill Torowitz was a fraternity brother of mine who'd been a very good soccer player in New Jersey. High school didn't have a football team. He came here and became a defensive lineman. His senior year, he was co-captain of the football team and all PAC. So there was fluidity. Mm -hmm. and, and he certainly had a chance to make your mark in athletics. My um, younger brother came here. He was two years behind me. And the year he was a pitcher on the baseball team, the year they won the um, spring of 70, the year they won the PAC. And, and I remember Bob Goins' quote, quote about him uh, in the um, yearbook for that year, keeping in mind he had Denny Robinson and Bill Torowitz as great pitchers to start. And he said our bullpen was Neil Kiefer. And he was, he was very effective as a reliever, as freshman and sophomore yeah. year before he became a starting pitcher. And then, um, but he also played basketball for all four years. So, you know, it was a place where um, there were athletic opportunities for someone who and well attended. Oh, and yeah. people were that was a, that was football a, stands were packed. And like you said, there was very minimal to do. Yeah. But you also, it was just another thing that you could do. So and people went. Concerts were really, really big. My first semester, homecoming. I didn't believe it. Um, Friday night, they have a concert by a group called the Grassroots, who were pretty darn big back in the late 60s. Count Basie was here for the homecoming dance. And then, Sunday afternoon, there's another concert by a group called Jefferson Airplane, which is today Starship, after being Jefferson and Starship in between. They keep getting better ways. <laughs> um, and, and during... Uh, during a semester, you would have th maybe three major concerts each semester. 
and, and you you name them all. You know, the Beatles weren't here, neither were the Rolling Stones. But the but, Eagles were here. But, but that was later. That was about a decade later. They're not that old. Um, <laughs> but um, just thinking, we had uh, I think Spanky and our gang. Um, who I can remember seeing the Association, the Fifth Dimension, um, the Turtles. The Letterman. That was all my sophomore year. And how did they get? How did they get these these acts to come to Bethany? Well, if you think about it, I here's what I think. Um, those acts, when they are touring, they're setting it up a year or so in advance, and they have holes in their schedule. Well, somebody like um, the Fifth Dimension, and they they weren't as big. Um, when the college signed them as they were when they got here because maybe a year in between but they might be playing at ohio state let's say on a, a sunday afternoon and they might be playing at uh, a pit at their field house on a, a wednesday night where they got monday and tuesday open which they've got a short drive and short equipment drive and they fill it up with someone else. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, I think the fifth dimension was $15,000 for that performance. Wow. So, and it was, um, there were some one-hit one wonders, but there were a lot of groups that, even I didn't appreciate them, like say Ian and Sylvia, the Canadian folk singers were here. Um, but it, it was, um, it was tough. For people from Pennsylvania big schools like Clarion and Slippery Rock, they would ask me who we had for down here, and I would tell them, they wouldn't, you're lying. <laughs> yeah, right. And this is not the social media era where you're able to take a, take a Snapchat of it and be like, told you they're here. Yeah. So, but it was, um, concerts were a big thing. And fraternity and sorority parties were just huge. Um, you, you would, uh, and you have a little bit of cross-fertilization because you're having a fraternity party, you would invite like uh, one or two guys from each of the other parties. Mm -hmm. well, I, I forgot to mention this. When I first got here, my freshman year, you couldn't have alcohol, beer, at a fraternity party on campus. So what you would do is you would rent an off-campus site. The community house in Fallsby was a big one. And you would have maybe two fraternities that would go together uh, and um, rent the place and buy the beer dates and um, uh, the fall, like I said Fallsby community, community House which is still there the uh, Eagles Club in Wellsburg which is now the Brook County Museum mm -hmm. um, but the KAs and the Alpha Sigs frequently have at least one party together a year um, you just but by the time I was a sophomore the college was decided to experiment because they wanted you to take buses to the parties, but some people were driving, and they knew drunk driving is not a good thing even then, especially on these roads. No. Because there were students who were permanently injured, or even, I don't think anybody was killed that I can recall, but permanently injured. Um, so the, the Sander Cox came to the Alpha Sigma and said, we're going to try and experiment with you. Uh, we're going to allow you to have a keg party in your house, and we're going to see how it goes. How and did it go? Went fine. You know, we had two or three kegs of beer. There were forty-five of us, fifty. Uh, I think we couldn't invite freshmen 
potential pledges, I think was the rule. Um, but we could have a band, we could have bass, whatever. And they let us do it maybe twice, and then they allowed other houses to do it. Mm -hmm. This was my sophomore year. Um, and so that became more the norm. There was always a party somewhere, it seemed like, at some house on the weekends. And that for, that stayed that all the way to your to, to you graduating? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the policy um, got lighter. I mean, for example, by the time I was a junior, at least for upper-class women, the hours policies were... Lifted. Le yeah, more or less. Women could actually go to their dormitory, sign a card, and take a key to the front door as long as they had it back by 8 in the morning. And they stopped sending that to the kind parents. of information to the parents. <laughs> well, so that's a good place. We're going to take a pause. And uh, I'm going to send it to KJ, Karen Dunn with Maple Shades Outdoors. If you haven't yet, follow him on Instagram. It's maple underscore shade dot outdoors. Or while you're watching this on YouTube, after you're done, hit subscribe to my channel and pop over to his channel, Maple Shade Outdoors on YouTube. Everything you need to know for hunting, fishing, and just being an outdoorsman. But we'll be back. This is Bill Kiefer, class of 1971. And I'm Carlo Guadagno. This is Dingo Talk, alumni tour. Go ahead, KJ. What's going on everybody? This is Kieran Dunn, founder of Maple Shade Outdoors. You're currently watching Dingo Talk with my man Carlo. If you're anything like me and you're really enjoying this content, you should like and subscribe his page. While you're on YouTube, you should probably just head over and like and subscribe Maple Shade Outdoors. Check out our page, enjoy some videos, some outdoor content. You might as well hop on Instagram, Facebook, follow us, Maple Shade Outdoors. Now that's enough about me. I'm trying to get back and watch the rest of Dingo Talk, so I'll talk to y'all later. What's going on, Chuckleheads? I am Carlo Guadagnino. This is the Dingo Talk Alumni Tour. My guest is Bill Kiefer, class of 1971. Uh, we left off. We were talking about what social life was like, the concerts, the fraternity parties, uh, the rigorous academics, and rigorous academics comps. Whoa. <laughs> so and so I've talked to a couple people and it was not the comps that I know comps. Correct? It wasn't everybody wasn't standing outside, there wasn't No. The, no, there was it wasn't like that at all. Um, comps you sat and you had two days, eight hours of written essay type question. Well, liberal arts school. I'm a history major, so um, that lends itself to written uh, responses. I, I don't know what they would do in physics or mathematics, even though I had fraternity brothers who were in those majors, but um, it is kind of unusual because they can, you know, they, history, they might ask you anything from the beginning of writing to last year. Yeah. So um, you weren't going to, there was a reading period of about a week, and you weren't going to learn the history of the world other than Mel Brooks's version <laughs> that period of time. So, and, and it was fair game. And, and as I recall, uh, they gave you a list of questions, and you could answer so many of them because they were a uniform list, yeah. and you may not have taken a class in 
of whatever they were asking about. So, um, but it was, uh, you're expected to spend about an hour on each essay question, or maybe 45 minutes. Um, and you were expected to know your stuff and you had to be creating, you know, like, like any other mm -hmm. exam. You have to analyze the question. What are they asking me? What do I know about it? How do I structure the answer? And then you can start writing. Um, and you were graded distinction on the, on the questions. Distinction, pass plus, pass, pass minus, fail. And um, it was it was strenuous, but it was not um, rocket science. You know, it wasn't petty stuff. I mean, you might be asked about one of my favorite topics, the Scottish Enlightenment or something. Or you might have been asked about Florence and the, and, and the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, so, or U.S. history. You might be asked to... You know, a broad question lets you talk about the causes leading up to the Civil War and the turning point of the war, whatever. Um, so the hard part, though, that everybody gutted was the oral examination, which is about an hour long. And um, it's a three-person panel um, consisting of generally um, a, a senior member of the faculty in your department, a junior member of the faculty in the department, and um, an outsider. So I had a panel of um, William Young, who was head chairman of the department, um, John Daly, who was his first year here, um, specialized in uh, history. This is before England. John Daly started golfing? Yeah, different John <laughs> Daly. And um, a sociology professor whose last name was um, I think from the Think Myers. And so um, I hadn't had Mr. Young since maybe the first semester of my, maybe second semester of my sophomore year. I got away from U.S. history, which was his specialty. And I wasn't the best at attending his class. A lot of times, if I didn't think somebody was a really gifted lecturer and I could get it from the book, I didn't show up. If, class was early in the morning or something. <laughs> um, especially if I, we had a bar in town by then, and if I'd been there too late. <laughs> uh, then I had Dr. Daly, History of England, that's just, I only had him one semester, this was his first year. Um, and it's really like the second half, like maybe from about uh, the, the um, Stuart's, re Stuart monarchy regaining the uh, crown after Parliament's revolution, and so starting with maybe um, Charles II, mm -hmm. up to the present day, or up to sometime, maybe the end with Queen Victoria. Um, and I had um, Dr. Myers from sociology, not the one from philosophy. Um, and I had taken a course from Myers, but I'm a senior. It's a 100 level course. I just needed a requirement or something. Yeah. And um, they were playing at the end of the semester a game called SimSocket, Simulated Society. I'm starting reading for And it's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be here anymore. What do you mean we're playing SimSocket? Yeah, I know. 
I got calls. I said, people die in Simsoc. They didn't work enough to get food, whatever. Just, you know, just pretend I, I died. I'm not going to be here <laughs> the next week. And he was very upset with me while he turns up on my panel. And daily, I had to cut for a week to take a special course that was a week long. Uh, something called uh, Russian Literature Through excuse me, Russian history through Russian literature in the 19th century, something like that. And it was a pretty cool course, but it was like a five-day-a-week, three-hour course for one week, one hour. And so I cut History of England for a whole week. Where were you? Well, I was taking this other class. And he blew up at me, and I now understand it. Somebody else was more important than me. Mm -hmm. This guy's a college professor, for Christ's sake. So, um, <laughs> Those two were on the panel, and so like Dr. Young goes, when I'm working, I'm trying to place you, and I, I see you've taken U.S. history a little bit, I couldn't remember who you were, but you have like the highest LSATs in the department, the highest GREs, whatever, some tests. Um, and these two gentlemen couldn't quite explain who you were, and it's not like with you know, a very kindly guy with two raging bears, and so <laughs> Daly starts talking to me in German. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm sorry, Dr. Daly, I, I don't have any understanding of German. Well, perhaps if I elaborate a little further, you'll understand whom this was said. And he starts out in German again. The one word I picked up was Juden, which is somebody's Jewish in German. And the only person I could think of was a prominent um, uh, Jew at the time that he's teaching and speaking of was Benjamin Disraeli, a, a, prim, a prominent prime minister of England. And I said, oh, that would likely be Disraeli. Oh, okay, I didn't expect you to get that one. So, and, and after that it went... Everything calmed down. Everything calmed down and it just went okay. I did not <laughs> get distinction. That was a foregone conclusion. Um, and later on I was mailed my um, uh, written answers, I think it was the practice back then, and they were all either pass plus or distinction minus, but as I recall, I don't think there was anyone in my department, and there were a lot of us, I'm going to say like about 18, I don't think there was anyone who got distinction. If there was, it would have been like maybe one person. So you finish out comps. Yep. You already had decided when you got to Bethany, law was going to be... I had been admitted to law school. I found that out. Uh, law school admissions back then were kind of all mailed about the same time. I had applied to Ohio Northern, um, Pitt, Dickinson, and WVU. I uh, got into Pitt, Dickinson, and Ohio Northern. WVU, I later found out, decided not to take any out-of-state students. So, uh, but I did learn because they called me during the summer, I was number two on their out-of-state waiting list. If we do take any out-of-state students, you just don't want to come. And um, I said, no, I'm not decided I'm going to go get this thing well. Later on in West Virginia Lawyer, 30 years later, there was a story about the guy who was number one on the out-of-state waiting list. And uh, he ended up practicing in West Virginia still. And they referred to it as the year we took no out-of-state students. Um, there was a big gap between number one and number two. He was in Harvard, and 
40, uh, I can't remember which, and he had come here and volunteers, Vista Volunteers in Service to America, and really wanted to stay. And unfortunately, he had to go to Yale Law School, and, and but then came back and worked public uh, interest positions, and he was a very successful lawyer in the state. So. And if you have somebody that is similar in Bethlehem, they're, they're graduating, or maybe they've already graduated and they're into this law school thing, how does law school go for... <laughs> well, at that time, at least I can only speak about Pitt, because that's where I was, and there was probably, um, you know, you have three classes, and I remember there were two Alpha Sigs in the third year class when I was uh, a first year. There were um, a KA and a, might have been an independent, I think a Delta in the second year class when I was a first year. There were Bethany kids that came, there was no other Bethany kid in my year at Pitt, but there were several in the years, the two years behind me. One of whom uh, transferred out was Kay Gorenflo, who's been a speaker here, um, who was a, um, I don't know if she still is or not, uh, justice of the uh, South Carolina Court, Supreme Court. So, but it was, um, again, intellectually challenging, but law school is very much logic-based, uh, vocabulary-based, reasoning, thinking, um, and, and it's really, um, I've always thought, a fascinating exercise. Not everybody will tell you that. <laughs> So what, after you get out of law school, what is the next move for Bill? Well, it was recession. So, um, and Pittsburgh was real, in 1974, Pittsburgh was in the throes of that. I had always wanted to be uh, in-house as a corporate attorney. Um, and there were, at that time, a tremendous number of corporate headquarters um, in uh, Pittsburgh. Um, trying to land a job with one of them. Uh, I remember Alcoa, which Aluminum Company of America at that time ruled the aluminum industry. Um, and their recruiter, I don't remember his name, but he was obnoxious. <laughs> and this, why this interview was not going well. And by the way, I had even better grades at uh, Pitt than I did at Bethany. Bethany. Yeah, so. Uh, I, was, I think I might have graduated right around 15th or so in my law school class. Um, and, and I said, tell me how many openings are there in your department? Because they, they had about 35, 40 lawyers in the department. And everything he would talk about was we at Alcoa. We at Alcoa. Just tell me at Alcoa. Um, and he said, well, we at Alcoa normally have two a year because typically someone will leave and will also expand the department. So, so there's two openings? No, we at Alcoa only have one opening this year. Where do we at Alcoa interview? He said, well, normally we mostly interview Pitt, Duquesne, Ohio State, more regionally. But as you know, this is a recession so this year, we at Alcoa are interviewing at Harvard and Yale, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I said, oh, do you have uh, people wanting to come to Pittsburgh there? Listen, I've got 38 people signed up for interviews at Yale over, that, over a two-day period. I said, I have no chance for this job. <laughs> um, but and it, it was a lot of there were interviews like that, and there weren't many of them. 
And um, what finally happened is I had an interview with, uh, well, I had a job offer from John O'Loughlin Steele, but it was to go to Cleveland. I didn't want to go to Cleveland because I was uh, involved in, with my uh, wife, then wife, excuse me, yeah, then wife. I got married right before my third year of law school to my Bethany sweetheart. She didn't want to leave Tri-State area. Um, and um, I had, I thought I was going to have a job in the legal department at U.S. Steel, but 74 ends up being a contractor in the steel industry. And once the contract settled, they put a hiring freeze on everything traditionally. So that evaporated. And I did have an interview with a national steel. And uh, they sent me down to their Weirton division to talk because they had an opening for a lawyer. And while I was there, I mean, it was an okay interview. It went pretty well. And my uh, uh, hometown of, of my then wife was Weirton. Um, I got a call when I got home. It was, Hi, I'm so-and-so, a fellow named David Robertson, who spent a year at the company. He says, you don't want to work for those bozos. Well, what do you do and how do you know I was there? So I represent, I have a law firm, I represent the union that they were in negotiations with. They pulled their lawyer out of negotiations to talk to you for a while. I asked him where he was and the name rang a bell. And if you want to come to where I want to talk to you. And so we went out, we had dinner. Um, it was a very small firm, but they were paying, were willing to pay me what the the biggest law firms in Pittsburgh were willing to pay her the in-house, which was that time around $15,000 a year. And I took the job. Now, it meant um, trying cases, mm -hmm. uh, really developing, um, not being spoon-fed anything, sink or swim, and you learned. And um, in the uh, my first 10 years there, I, I can't, I used to know, but I don't remember how many jury trials I did. Labor arbitrations were well over a hundred. And things like um, workers' compensation hearings and stuff, you kind of did in your sleep. Yeah. You know? um, but, you know, you, I appeared before the state Supreme Court a number of times, probably five or six times a year. So it was a very intense sort of practice, but it was rewarding. Mm -hmm. And when I was about uh, 32 or 3, National Steel Corporation decided to spin off that particular division. Uh, it was the Weirton division. And uh, to an ESOP uh, of Weirton's employees if they could pull off the financing. Well, the union was heavily involved in that. Um, so I got involved because, as I said, um, David um, was uh, the union's counsel, and um, at the end of which, uh, you know, I, I still wanted to do something different, a corporation somewhere, and lo and behold, um, the Wheaton Steel Corporation made me a job offer because the fellow who was heading their legal, had headed their legal department was going to Pittsburgh to work in a law firm, and um, would I be interested in? Uh, more or less uh, heading it. It was a, a nascent, mm -hmm. I can't say that, uh, law department, and where did we go from here? And I spent 20 years doing that, uh, 19 and a half.
And then how? So how do you end up finding your way back to back to Bethany? Yeah. But keep in mind, I'm only a little ways up the road. So somehow or other, when I was in my mid-thirties, Bethany reaches out to me to be on alumni council, and I did that for about six years or so. Um, and then I took a break, and a few years later, um, in 1999, um, Bethany reaches out to me to, for would I accept a position on the board of trustees, and I. I said, boy, this is a little fish out of water here. I mean, I wasn't that good a student or anything like that. I was okay. Why would you want me on the board of trustees? But it was really about the ability to, as many cases, give or find giving sources because you're well-known or whatever. And uh, I had worked with a number of charities and, of course, at being involved in getting money for them, so I was still general counsel and uh, vice president, etc. at Weirton Steel. Um, and I stayed on the board for about six years, but it's, so during that six years, the American steel industry disappeared. Mm -hmm. There were 53 basic steel companies in 1999, and there became, on the integrated side, I want to say six by 2004. Because they, one after another, into bankruptcy and then either being closed or snapped up by larger fish. And Weirton was the last or next to last, or 47, let's say, that entered bankruptcy. Weirton went in either the 46th or 47th. It almost didn't. And it almost got out intact, uh, but for labor management issues. And uh, so, it went, it was going to be part of something else. Yeah. I left. I went to a large law firm, and went to a that time large, called Steptoe & Johnson. It's still large. It's over 200 lawyers. It has numerous offices in um, West Virginia. And I decided to take a job at their wheeling office. And um, there's a lot of legal work. You know, I mean, I fairly common, uh, well-known uh, corporate lawyer, plus had two years of work to wrap up the Weirton Steel uh, local council side of it. Um, and I started uh, doing work for several of the colleges, Bethany, Mealing Jesuit, and, and others, and um, a little further away. But um, that, you know, may have like uh, minor questions, mm -hmm. thinking about opening a branch and West Virginia, blah, blah, blah. Um, so um, I started doing more and more work for the college on a pretty much pro bono basis. Uh, but sometimes I'd say, listen, I, you know, this month I got 40 hours for you. I got to charge you something. You yeah. got to put it in next <laughs> month. Uh, but after doing that for about two years, the then president came to me and, and suggested that perhaps I might like to be his number, quote, number two person, that's what he called it, at Bethany. And I gave it some thought. At first, I didn't want to do it. Um, but the more I thought about it, I didn't really like practicing law anymore. It wasn't that much fun. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't like, in my mid-50s, 
whining and dining people, and uh, especially after years and years of being whined and dined by people who want me for a client. So um, I knew how to play the game, but I just really didn't want to do it much anymore. Um, so the longer I thought about it, the more of a good idea it became. And um, I came to Bethany in the late summer of 2005 and um, basically had responsibility for things that um, I didn't have to worry about fundraising, I didn't have to worry about faculty, and um, I didn't have to worry about admissions. But the other things, like where does the sewage go, are there enough beds in this dormitory, um, everything, where are we with regard to um, scholarships in this sport, that sport, how do, when the NCAA runs our numbers, how are we going to look? I mean, all the myriad of things that a college has, mm -hmm. whether it is who's the food service, who's the cleaning service, um, the contracts we had, uh, the copy, where the copiers come from, all of that stuff fell into my bailiwick, so that means Pretty much everybody from um, custodians um, all the way up through controllers would be people that would report to me and that I would have a relationship with. It was probably, if you take the faculty on, it was probably two-thirds or three-quarters of the people that yeah. left. So. Well, then five years after you get here, this. The guy sitting, I guess I, I fall into, I get, I get fall, dropped into your lap. <laughs> and that was enjoyable. At first I didn't know what to make of you. Um, for, you were an Alpha Sig, and by then the Alpha Sigs were, well, Greek life was in trouble at Bethany, and the Alpha Sigs were very problematic. They were not attracting uh, enough members. And those that they did attract were not necessarily responsive to a lot of things, like, hey, you've got to get up and go to class, or whatever. Um, and they were in a lot of occasional trouble, we'll say, with their national association. All of a sudden, you show up, and it was, I used to, the closest thing I've ever seen to it would be like, forgive me, Steve McKinley, but a Marine drill sergeant with a platoon of recruits. Yeah, I, sometimes I swore that you marched them to and from events. And don't lie, you did. <laughs> we have to be there, we have to be there at this time. Okay, in line. Line up in alphabetical order. order, order <laughs> well, I don't know if we were doing alphabetical order, but we definitely marched all the You did march. <laughs> so, um, and that's how I first got to know you, because this guy is going to save my fraternity. And you did. Wow. So, I mean, your efforts were huge in that regard. Now, that's not to say that the efforts of Larry Grimes or um, Josh or Andy Arkees, yeah, that all of they all participated in it. You know, I kind of um, when you're supervising security for the college campus, you can't show partiality to your own fraternity. You can't be an advisor to them. Or at least that was my role. Because we tried. Um, yeah, we tried. And I would have loved to have done it. But as long as security was under my watch, yeah. 
And that, that just wasn't going to happen because anything that was alleged that you all had done, that I had not thoroughly investigated or slacked off on, comes back. Comes back. Yeah. And, and everybody else is going to claim that they, they got a raw deal. So, um, but we developed, I think, a workable relationship, even with the birds. Even with the damn birds. <laughs> Should I tell that story? You're more than welcome to tell that. <laughs> okay, there are stuffed birds. For those who haven't been in the Ogle Bay, what used to be the Ogle Bay Hall of Science, and is now the... Bird Room, that's what, it's Kirkpatrick, but Kirk it's... Kirkpatrick Hall. And it is, there's a room up there called the Bird Room, more or less. It's got all kinds of stuffed birds from little scarlet tanagers and. Big old bald eagle with the whole full wingspan. Owls. <laughs> anyway, four or five of them, three or four of them disappear. So I get the call because the head of the department, Dr. Buckler, is very, very upset. His bird, some of his birds are gone. And. Was he the five-time advisor? Uh, I believe at the time, yes. Because Farwell had already left. Okay. So I think Jay took over for Dr. Buckaloo took over okay. for We're talking when was this, about 2010? 2013-ish. Okay, right so around. around my last year. At the yeah. College. And uh, security, my security forces say, we think your guys got him. So I, uh, so I sent an email to you that said something like, bring back the damn birds. I need to meet with you. Yeah. It? I need to meet with you about recruitment and some events that you've had. Also, bring the damn birds with you so I can give them back. Yes. And then the meeting was not the same. You came in, you had no idea what the heck I was talking about. And, uh, I thought he wanted me to catch birds. I, I was like, I don't know how am I going to bring these birds into the... Is there, is there a pigeon problem with the guns? <laughs> is it up in the tower? And uh, it turned out, I think the Phytos had the birds. It was was the Phytos, and we just... I just remember walking in, and you going, don't, don't even ask me about the birds. I don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah, I mean, we developed a, even... A healthy working relationship. Even to, to now, where yeah. it's... You never, you never kept tabs, but there was always a, hey, Bill, this is what I'm doing. I know. I, 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 there's still people. That's right. And we all, we have mutual friends with probably have mutual enemies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last question, well, the wrap, two wrap-up questions. Okay. One, if you're a D3 athlete, yep. why would you go, or if you're a high school athlete, why would you go down the Division Three road? as opposed to maybe not going D1 or D2. Okay. Um, you know, I've had this issue with my brother, and um, I've had it with my children. And um, I think my children were a little easier to deal with on this than my brother was who came here. Um, but you realize you're not going to be a professional athlete and doing this for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, my, uh, my, my two younger boys were excellent soccer players and excellent basketball players up through about ninth grade because they didn't get any bigger than five, nine and a half. <laughs> and uh, 
that's just the way it is, you know, when you're five, nine and a half, and even as a senior, and being 140 pounds, you're not going to be dry going to the lane no. and getting in the paint. Um, and everybody on a team can shoot over you anyway. Mm -hmm. so, um, but, but you realize that it is, and uh, athletics is something that can add to your appreciation of the college experience. Whether you're participating as a uh, on any level, mm -hmm. you know, just if you know, you know, I'm trying to think about this. That Division three, there's much should be much less pressure on yeah. than there is in Division two and Division one. I mean, that's the only way I, I can put it. It's not always the case. But it should be something that you're doing because it is enjoyable. And, uh, you know, I've always had an issue with the coaches that say, if you go Greek, you ride the bench, or you drop the team, whatever that. Um, just because I think that that's, they're interfering too much with the student's life. And the college experience and that they're choosing. And the college choosing. experience. And that's just, we, we're not giving them free ride. No. rides that we don't own them. No. They should be free to explore their choices in any way. Well, and on that note, yeah. why, if you're pitching Bethany College, yeah. why Bethany College? Ah. Depends on what you want to do. I mean, there's so many things. Like now, you know, it'd be very easy to say, you know what? Our theater department is growing. You have all kinds of opportunities to do things. We had a lady named Fran McDormand to go here. Um, and by the way, there was a, another guy, uh, William Macy. He started out here before he went to Middlebury. Um, but you, you, there's all kinds of examples you can use. Mm -hmm. You know, John Nieder, who, who was uh, head of the National Institute of Health. There, Linda Lewis, you know, prominent uh, neurologist in New York City, the associate dean of the medical school at Columbia University. Tons of people that you can point to that if you're really concerned about what your life is going to be after college, you can really benefit from being at this school because one thing about it, it is not rigid. And I think the future of small colleges is going to be, um, and I think Bethany will get there, they're not quite there yet, but partway. Stackable credentials. You know something about computers. You know something about uh, electronics. You mm -hmm. know something about um, a, foreign, a foreign language. And that you have, uh, can certify that you've done, um, say, 12 hours in French, or you've done it in German, and you've done, done 12 hours, 16 hours in accounting. That rather than being rigidly tied to a major, as education has become, mm -hmm. um, the employers are going to want people who have a broad base of knowledge. It doesn't have to be 20,000 leagues deep, mm -hmm. but they have to be able to understand what's coming next in many fields. You just don't want them to be, you want people who aren't going to be blindsided by the next development. So um, I think that's one thing. And I think another is the opportunity still um, to have 
at the end, let me, let me say this a little differently. At the end of the day, you are going to get out of college exactly what you put into it. And I think that this is a place where it really can make a difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. I've just gotten done, almost done, uh, I just did part three or four of a newspaper series for a small paper on um, Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell and what they started. And um, I heard this joke once at, at Founders Day in the college that Alexander and Campbell was going to bring all Christians together under one umbrella. Instead, he created six new denominations. <laughs> in reality, it's nine. <laughs> but, um, it, it, it got a little off track there. But you, um, it's a place where you can point out to so many people who um, were, that are prominent or were prominent, extremely successful, that really benefited from this place. And it is a place where um, it's based in the uh, traditions of the Scottish Enlightenment of the early 1800s and its approach to learning. And that continues to this day. And I think there's, it is hard to find somewhere that gives you the intellectual freedom mm -hmm. that I believe Bethany does. Well, Bill, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's, it's just like old times. We're just not sitting in your office. That's true. <laughs> uh, we're going to send it to Harry Chambers, Chambers General Store. If you haven't been in, if you haven't been, to, if you've been to Bethany and haven't been into Chambers, you didn't actually come to Bethany. I, I don't care who what, who you are. And if you've gone into Chambers and found something that they don't have, you're a liar. Because if they don't have it, you don't need it. But uh, this has been the Dingo Talk Alumni Tour. I am Carlo Guarnino, Bill Kiefer, my guest, class of 1971. But Harry Chambers, go ahead and take it away. Just watched another exciting episode of Dingo Talk, recorded in the secret lair deep in the hills of Bethany, West Virginia. Let me give a shout out to my man Don over at Maple Shade Outdoor. He got some great, he's got some great stuff going on over there on YouTube and Instagram. Please make sure you check him out. Also, now available as promised, we have the second edition Bethany, West Virginia Mushroom Capital of the World T-shirts and our Chambers General Store. If we don't have it, you don't need it T-shirts. Available in all sizes. So make sure you stop by the store for a t shirt, breakfast sandwich, or sausage biscuits and gravy, and make sure to check out those daily lunch specials. Now back to you, Dingo. Bye now.